Amen. All righty. Well, good morning, guys. We doing all right this morning? It's good to see everybody. Today, I don't have the whiteboard up because I wasn't going to draw any charts. And even when you write the, the words down, you can't even read what it says. So this morning, we are talking about the cheery topic of death. All right? We're talking about death. It's going to be a whole Sunday morning of death. Who, just a show of hands, really enjoys talking about death? <clears throat> yeah, that's right. You go out to dinner with some friends and you're like eating a good steak. You're like, I wonder how this cow died. I wonder when you guys are going to die. You know, you're just one of those weird people that loves talking about death. You probably won't get invited to many dinner parties. <clears throat> but death is just this awkward subject that we don't like to talk about. We're not big fans of gathering around and just talking for 45 to 50 minutes about death. But that's what we're doing today because I tend to be somebody who likes to facilitate awkward situations. Uh, because of that, I kind of like to play this joke on people. Um, some of you may not know that I'm a type 1 diabetic. Uh, type 1 diabetes, I like to call it not my fault diabetes. And so <laughs> a lot of people will say, man, that's, that's crazy. What's it like having diabetes? You know, what are the long-term effects of that? And I always like to say, well, they don't call it livabetes. It's kind of weight. <laughs> It processes, and they're like, ugh, and they just try to escape the situation. We, we just don't like talking about death. We don't like even jokes about death. It just kind of makes us feel, ugh. And I think the reason, there's a couple of reasons why we don't like talking about death. I think reason number one is that we're afraid of death, specifically because we're not in control of death. We don't have any kind of control over death. We're afraid of it. We don't know when it's going to happen. Last night, I went and saw Willie Nelson, who's 85 years old. Because who knows when that guy's going to go? You know, we have no control over it, all right? So we're, we're afraid of death. And on the more serious note, some of you have serious illnesses. You have family members with serious illnesses. And it's kind of this dark cloud looming over you. You don't know when the, the lightning is going to strike, per se. And so we just, don't, we just avoid the topic altogether. And the second reason I think we're uncomfortable with death is that it just makes us sad, it's a difficult topic. It's, it's depressing. We hate to see people die. It's just, it's sad. Uh, <clears throat> some of us have lost family members. I lost my dad when I was nine years old, and it was a, it was a terrible time. My whole life was kind of turned upside down. It was not a pleasant experience. So we don't really enjoy reliving those moments. For those of us who have lost friends and family members, some of us have even lost children, and that's not a topic that we're really ready to get into. Finally, I think that we're uncomfortable with death because I think in many ways we don't view death through a biblical lens. I think, I think sometimes that uh, we understand death more in line with our secular culture uh, than with the Word of God. And look no further to a bunch of funerals that you'll go to. Listen to what's said theologically about death and you'll see very quickly sometimes the church, some of the weirdest theological statements I've heard about death happened at the funerals of believers. I've been to a ton of funerals, not because I'm like a weird person that likes going to funerals. It's like, oh, this is why he's the death guy. Not like that. I've just, I've known a lot of people who've died and at their funerals, even hearing strange theological stuff that's said about death that you're like, whoa, 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 where are you getting that from? I remember there was a pastor who talked about how he saw this glimmer of light in the person's eyes as they died. And what was that, you ask? Well, that was the person's view of heaven reflecting in their eyes as they died or whatever. Just weird stuff. That was a Baptist church down the road in Dallas. <clears throat> so I could give a ton of reasons why we're uncomfortable with death, but here's my entire point. 
Just because we're uncomfortable with a topic does not mean that we can just avoid it altogether. Just because we're uncomfortable with something, it doesn't mean that we should avoid the topic altogether. And actually, you'll find, theologically speaking, that the topics that are most uncomfortable to you are usually the ones you know the least about. It kind of feeds into our discomfort. There's a lot of people that will leave churches because they're uncomfortable with a certain topic being discussed. But really, what, what's behind that is they need to talk about it more. They need to study it. They need to understand it more. But rather, they say, I don't like that. I'm, I don't want to talk about it anymore. So... I'll just, I'll just go. God's word has a lot to say regarding death, and our discomfort is never license uh, to run away from it, to lo- run away from this uncomfortable topic. So my goal for today, first I just want us to feel a little less uncomfortable talking, talking about something that will likely be the, the very last thing that everyone here in this room will ever do, okay? Something that, until Christ returns, is completely unavoidable. It's inevitable for us. And if possible, I also want us to see the sovereignty of God and the sovereignty, of the grace of God in death. To even see a reason to worship God as you study the biblical doctrine of death. In the same way that you worship God for uh, his sovereignty and the doctrine of election, that you would be able to worship God for his sovereignty and electing to you a certain number of days. So I'm going to do this by, if you look at your handouts, if you haven't gotten one of those, they're in the back on that table like they are every single Sunday morning. I want to do this by first giving us a good definition of death. I want to walk through a good definition. What is death? I want to talk about why death happens, why we die. I want to talk about how really death is this punishment for sin. I want to talk about then why Christians die. And then finally, we'll talk about how we should think about and view our death in general, death, as we move forward. Okay? Sound good? So let's all take a deep breath. And everybody repeat after me. This will not be as depressing as I think it'll be. Amen. Okay, let's get into it. How do we define death? What do we mean when we talk about death? From the get-go, we have to kind of distinguish between two different types of, or categories of death that Scripture is going to discuss. The first we'll call physical death, and the second we'll call spiritual death. And so let's begin with physical death. Physical death is the removal, the cessation, the stoppage, the ending, or the termination of life. Those are all different words I'm using to mean the same thing. Physical death is the cessation of life. So just notice right there that death isn't a thing in and of itself. Death is not a thing, but rather it's the absence of life. Just like darkness is the absence of light, Death is the absence of life. I can't, I can't give to you death, but I can take your life if you're weaker than I am. I can take your life. Does that make sense? So death is the cessation of life. So you have this goldfish named Jeffrey, and one day, it's a great goldfish name. You have Jeffrey the goldfish, and he's doing great, and then one day, he's, he, he's not doing great, and his life has been taken from him. There's, there's no more life. He has died. Or you gave your wife flowers for Valentine's Day, and they're beautiful, and they're full of life, and there's this beautiful bouquet on your kitchen table, but now, or in the next few days, spoiler alert, they're going to begin to die, and you'll have this bouquet of death 
to remember your love for your spouse. <laughs> all living things die in this way. All living things die in this way. But here's what's important. The physical death that humanity experiences is different from a goldfish or your roses. For mankind, physical death is the cessation of life that consists of the separation of the soul from the body. Did y'all hear that? The death is this end of phys- uh, the end of life consisting of the separation of the soul from our body. A human being, we talked about this a long time ago when we studied anthropology together, a human being is the unity of soul and body. The death of a human being involves the separation of those uh, parts or those, uh, that union of what a human is. And there are many that would kind of prefer to understand death of humans, like the death of just a plant or just an animal, because we're just intelligent animals after all. But biblically speaking, the death of a human is not only qualitatively different from an oak tree or a pet dog, because humans are more valuable, I hope that's not news to you, but it's compositionally different. Their life is removed from them, but for the human being, it's a separation of the soul from the body. There's, there's more going on in the physical death of a human being. So I have some texts there in your notes. We're going to look at some passages. Psalm 104, 29. When you, meaning God, when God, when you hide your face, they, meaning humans, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. Now, it's important to note, in Greek and Hebrew, the idea of breath and the soul overlap. So that word there we just read in Psalm 104 for breath can be translated wind or spirit or life or soul. And so it's understood as when someone takes their last breath or they they give up that last breath, it's giving up their soul. They're so intertwined, these two definitions. So often throughout both Old Testament and New Testament, you'll kind of see this this mix. You'll say like, and then he breathed his wind. What does that mean? Well, he's meaning his soul, his his spirit, okay? So Ecclesiastes 12.7, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit, the wind, the breath, the life returns to God who gave it. James 2.26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. In John 19.30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, gave up his breath. Have you ever heard the, the term giving up the ghost? That's where this comes from. He gave up his ghost. So physical death is best understood as the separation of the soul from the body, the removal of the soul and the departure of the soul from the body. That's physical death. Now what about spiritual death? What does that even mean? What does spiritual death mean? Is that what happens when you don't raise your hands enough in worship or something like that? Let's read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, okay? So is this person dead or alive? You were dead. Okay, there, I'll just give you the answer. They're, they're dead, apparently. Following the course of this world, well, that sounds very active. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Oh, not separate from the body. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest 
of mankind. So Paul tells us in Ephesians that we were dead, but then he goes to say all these things that we were doing while we were dead. So it sounds like we're actually very much so alive. We're just confusing. So this is why we need these categories between physical and spiritual death. Paul's obviously talking about a death that is other than physical. He's talking about spiritual death. Now what do I mean by spiritual death? Spiritual death is the cessation of an individual's spiritual life with God. What a terrible definition. That doesn't tell me anything, Tim. What do I mean by that? Spiritual death is the cessation of an individual's spiritual life with God. That means a bunch of things. Here's what I'm trying to connote with that meaning. First, it means that the cessation of an individual's membership in God's kingdom. The end, the termination of someone's membership in God's kingdom. See, God's the creator of life. He's the sustainer of all things. And therefore, everyone submitted to his rule and reign is given life and life that is sustained. And so to die spiritually is to no longer be a part of this kingdom, to be actually an enemy of God, to be at odds with the author, the creator, the sustainer of life. So spiritual death means that this positive relationship with God comes to an end. Second, spiritual death is the cessation of a desire and ability to love, obey, and enjoy God's rule and reign. So the part of you that could ever desire to obey God, to love God, to cherish his word, is dead at spiritual death. So this kind of points, as you can tell, to the doctrine of uh, the total depravity of mankind. This isn't a matter of how sinful you could be or how sinful you are, but rather how completely, totally dead you are in regard to doing anything righteous. You're unable, those who are spiritually dead. Augustine says he would describe the spiritually dead as uh, those, who, the, the term is non posse, non pecare, which just means not able not to sin. Augustine says that we who are spiritually dead are not able not to sin. So imagine, this is just a way to illustrate this. Imagine you own a business and you hire someone to do sales for your business, to kind of market your products, to convince other businesses to use your product. So you hire the best salesman in the world. He's the very best. And you give them all these sales goals for the fiscal year. And you say, okay, go crush it. You go and sell. I don't know what sales looks like, but do a lot of selling, okay? <clears throat> and so they start selling and they're doing great, but then they die. What is their performance review at the end of the fiscal year going to look like? Did they meet any of their sales goals? No. Did they attend any team meetings? No. Did they manage and help develop employees that were underneath them? No. What did they do? They did nothing. They died. They can't do anything because they're dead. And so long as these performance goals remain the same, they will be unable to come anywhere close to doing what they've been asked to do. And likewise, the one who is spiritually dead is completely unable to continue in relationship with God. The only difference is that we actually choose to be spiritually dead. We're lifeless in regard to enjoying God's rule and reign, submitting to his word, worshiping him. And so long as we're dead, then we will continue to fall short of the standard that's been given by God. Does that make sense? So that is spiritual death and physical death. 
The question is now, why do these happen? Why do we die? Why do people die? Where does death come from? At first, it's important to note that we did not always die. It is, it's unnatural and strange, peculiar for humans to die. When talking about death, when the soul is separated from the body, Paul refers to it as being naked or being unclothed, a.k.a. lacking the proper composition to function as it should in the world. That severing of the body and the soul is weird and unnatural. We forget that sometimes. Sometimes we think, oh, it's just, death's just a part of life. It's the, it's the yin to life's yang. That's just how it goes. But no, death was not originally part of the human experience. So when you crack open your Bible in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, you read that in the beginning everything was submitted to God's rule and reign. God's the author of life, as we mentioned, so everything and everyone submitted to his rule and reign lives. And therefore, there's no illness, there's no sickness, there's no disease, no cancer, no type 1 diabetes, or especially no death. There's no death. Everything is doing what it should be doing, functioning as it should be functioning, according to God's rule and reign. And so God creates this garden. And this garden, is, it just displays his glory. And he puts mankind, the crown of his creation, his representatives, his image bearers, he puts them in the middle of this garden to kind of demonstrate to the heavens and the earth, this is what the rule of God looks like. This is what God's rule and reign looks like. This is what God's dominion looks like. Really just for mankind to glorify God by enjoying and treasuring his word and his creation. So we read in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall sh may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Or a good translation would be, dying you will die. So Adam and Eve are given the gift of every tree in the garden. Every tree of the garden is at their disposal. They're, they're, they're given physical life that will, ne will never end. And they're given the spiritual life with God that has no end. Just don't eat of this tree. Don't eat of this tree. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So death is this unnatural, it's unnatural to the human experience. It's not a natural part of humanity's design. Otherwise, the threat has no meaning. The threat of death has no meaning if it's already a part of humanity. If I say to you, I don't want anybody in this room to ever eat at Chili's again, which is something I desire. I want none of you to ever eat at Chili's ever again. For in the day that you eat of Chili's, the sun will set and there will be hours of darkness until the sun rises again. You're going to still eat at Chili's. Why? Because that happens every day. That's not, a, that's not a real threat. That's not going to motivate me to stop eating food that just tastes like it was taken out of the freezer and then thawed at room temperature. I'm not convincing you because the threat has no meaning. And likewise, if God's threat has any meaning, it shows us that death was not a part of the original design. Death is not natural, and neither is Chili's. They both remind us that something has gone terribly wrong. So God says, don't eat of this tree lest you die, and we all know what happens. Mankind talks with this talking serpent, 
and they reject the rule and reign of God. Actually, in trying to gain something that God had not given to them, they forfeit the life that God had given to them. And so immediately there, they experience spiritual death. Immediately there, we see they're expelled from God's presence. There are curses. There's enmity between them and God. They're kicked out of the garden. So there's this immediate spiritual death. But also, they immediately, their, their physical bodies begin to experience the pains of death. Each day they live, they are closer, a day closer to death. They grow fatigued. They, they ache. They begin to die. And it's at this point, this early point, very early point in human history, that death enters the world. And so later Paul will recount this in Romans 5. Romans 5 verse 12. Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We, we die. Why do we die? Because of sin. Because of our sin against God. And death is the punishment for that sin. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We die because the entire human race through Adam is guilty of sin. We're guilty of sin both personally and corporately through Adam, our father. Mankind has broken fellowship with the author of life and death is our reward. When you tell God, I'm not interested in this relationship, then you forfeit the benefits of the relationship. So to give you an, an illustration here, I was a waiter, I worked a, at a restaurant for a little while. Fun fact, everybody on staff at Parkway at one time spent time in the food service industry. So next time you're getting your tables waited on and you're ordering at Starbucks, just think, this guy could be my pastor someday. <laughs> <clears throat> I was a waiter for some time, and this was the thought that kept me up at night all the time. Why do we give people their food before they pay for it? That makes no sense. At Starbucks, it's different. They're like, give me the money, because they know what they're doing. I mean, obviously. But at restaurants, like the one I worked at, people walk in. I mean, anybody could just walk in, and there's nothing that would ever tell them that they needed to pay. So imagine someone lives under a rock, They've never been to a restaurant before. And they say, I'm going to go to one of these restaurant things. They walk in. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. How many, fruit, you know, how many are eating with you? Oh, just by myself. Great. Come over here. Would you like something to drink? Uh, yes. What do you have? Well, this whole list of things. These are all options to you. Great. I'll take this one. What do you want to eat? I'll take a 42-ounce steak. Okay, great. And then they tell the kitchen, cook this thing that this guy has not guaranteed to pay for. Go ahead and bring out all the stuff that we don't know. We don't have a, a credit score on this guy. We don't know what he's doing. We have no idea. He could be like a serial dine and dasher that's just going line by line down each restaurant. We have no idea. And so they do that. They bring the food, and they, he eats the whole meal, and they go, oh, how was it, sir? Oh, it was excellent. Great. And then the waiter walks away. He should leave. I just don't understand. I don't understand what we're doing. Restaurants make no sense to me. But the restaurant I worked at, we actually did, there was a penalty for such a sin. One time this guy came in, which this was the first problem he made. He walked in, he said, oh, my friend so-and-so recommended that we come try this place out. 
And so we're like, oh, we know that guy. Great. The couple came and did exactly what I just described, ordered all these things, and then before the check was brought to their table, they bounced. They dined and dashed. So the owner looked up the guy that they told, they said a person's name that we knew. Hey, we're friends of this person. Found them on Facebook, printed out their picture, posted on the wall when you walked in the restaurant. These people are thieves. But the guy and his wife, these people are thieves, don't trust them. It was really intense. They were, the hostesses were, were told, don't let these people in. If you see them, come and get the owner or the manager. It was pretty intense because you can't enjoy the benefits of the relationship without upholding to the terms of the relationship. You can't do that. You can't enjoy the benefits without upholding the terms of the relationship. And the restaurants, this is the problem. The restaurants' relational terms are not explicit, but God's are extremely explicit. Work the ground, keep the garden, have dominion. Just don't eat this. Don't eat this. If you eat this, if you rebel against my rule and reign, you will forfeit this relationship. And he puts his hostesses, these angels with flaming swords, that do not let these people in here. Because God is the sustainer of all things. He's the giver of life, the God of order, the God of harmony. And so mankind in rebellion gains loss of life, gains chaos, gains disunity, gains death. We gain what we desire, which is a kingdom of our own, sustained by us alone. And so, therefore, death is the penalty for our sin. Whew. Let's just summarize. What have we talked about so far? What is death? Well, it depends on what you're talking about. There's two that we could talk about, physical death and spiritual death. Physical death is the cessation of life, which consists of the separation of the soul from the body. Spiritual death is the cessation of an individual's spiritual life with God. Why do we die? Because of sin. Sin is a curse, a punishment. Uh, death is a punishment given to man for man's rebellion against the giver of life. Now with that in our mind, I want to read a couple of passages that will kind of lead us to our next question. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Romans 8, 1 through 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Romans 6.23, remember again, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Finally, John 11.25 through 26a, Jesus talking to the woman at the well. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So let me ask you this. What is the wages of sin? Death. Has the blood of Christ paid for your sins? Yes. Did Christ offer a single sacrifice for all time to pay for your sins? Are all of your sins paid for? Does the Christian stand condemned before God? Well, then why do Christians die? Why do we still experience 
death, if the penalty for sin has been satisfied completely by Christ's one time and for all sacrifice, then why do those to whom Christ's sacrifice is applied still die? There's no condemnation, yes and amen, but death is the penalty for sin, and we die. So is there condemnation? Have you ever thought about this? So let's think through this. I don't want you to get too stressed out, okay? Fear not. First, we have to recognize that the reason Christians still die cannot be because the Christian is being punished for sin. That can't be a view that we hold because it's not a biblical view. Did we not just read that we have been set free from death, that we do not come into judgment, that we have passed from death to life? So we don't get to just throw those texts out and say, well, I guess Jesus had no idea what he's talking about. No, the same Jesus who says that we pass from death to life tells Peter that he's going to die. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, so then death cannot be a punishment that's applied to Christians because it's already been applied to Christ. We don't owe a debt deserving of physical or spiritual death. The debt has been completely paid. The sentence has been served. Christ's sacrifice paid it once and for all. Therefore, death is not a punishment that the Christian bears. Christ bore it all on the cross. So then, why do Christians die? What's going on then? I think there's a couple of things that we can say. First, we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world, as a a theologian Wayne Grudem says, where the effects of sin have not all been removed. So as a result of the fall, the world is filled with disease and illness and corruption. Our organs are going to fail. We will lose our strength. Because as John says in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. We're God's children now, completely redeemed now. But what we will be has not yet appeared. Our salvation is not yet complete. The benefits of our salvation have not yet been completely applied. We are not yet what we will be. So I think it's helpful to think of this process of redemption, which we spent all last semester talking about. It's helpful to think of this process of our redemption in a similar light to the fall of mankind. So Adam and Eve are perfect. They're without sin. And then they sinned, and God said, in the day that you sinned, they would die. And so we see that immediately they die spiritually. And their physical life progressively deteriorates beginning on that day. The curse is gradually applied. The glory of their their perfection, it slowly fades away. And in our redemption, in our salvation, we are resurrected spiritually from the dead on the day of our conversion. We're given spiritual life on that day. But then all the benefits of our salvation are not immediately applied. We're not what we will be. It is yet to appear. Instead, this appearing is going to happen later on, as the Bible tells us, when Christ removes all of the remaining effects of death. When he takes us out of these dying mortal bodies and gives us eternal, imperishable bodies. So we read 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 26. For as in Adam all die... So also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, Christ the first one to die and then be made alive. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, 
And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is the last enemy to be destroyed. And later on in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57, when the perishable, meaning our mortal bodies, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on, the, puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So death is not a punishment, but rather the effects of living in a fallen world. The, the result of the benefits of our salvation having not all been applied. At least not yet. We're, we're still living in these perishable bodies with type 1 diabetes. So we die. The imperishable bodies come later when death is swallowed up in victory. But that's not today. So I like how Wayne Grudem kind of sums this up in his systematic theology. I have this written in your notes. Although God often answers prayers to deliver Christians and also non-Christians from some of these effects of the fall, meaning disease, injury, aging, natural disasters, etc., nevertheless, Christians eventually experience all of these things to some measure, and until Christ returns, all of us will grow old and die. The last enemy has not yet been destroyed, and God has chosen to allow us to experience death before we gain all the benefits of salvation that have been earned for us. But why, oh God, why haven't all the benefits of our salvation been applied to us? Why the wait? Why doesn't God just transform us right there? He does it spiritually. Why not physically? Why doesn't he give us new imperishable bodies right here, right now? I think there's a couple of good reasons for this. And one is kind of, almost kind of silly, but I think it would be really weird for Christians to be the only people that don't die. Where, where is the faith when you're given this choice to become a Christian and join all these people over here? You see Abraham still chilling over there, living fine, eating his veggies, or you can just die. What kind of faith is that? That's a faith in what is seen, not what is unseen. Everybody would want to be a Christian if Christians were just these eternal, immortal beings. Second, more importantly, I think, God uses death to discipline and to sanctify us. God uses death to discipline and to sanctify us. So we all go through difficult things, whether it's losing a job or fighting with your family or being despised for your beliefs at work. And God uses that suffering, these difficult things, as a means of discipline and sanctification, making us holy, making us more and more like Christ, conforming us to Christ's image. So look at Hebrews 12, 10b through 11. But he, meaning God, God disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And our experience of death is no different. This experience is painful, not pleasant, not at all pleasant, but it makes us like Christ, that we may share in God's holiness. Being disciplined through suffering is not, don't read that as a, some sort of punishment, a, a different term to say punishment for sin. That's not what discipline is. Let me ask you this. Did, did Christ sin? Did Christ sin? No. 
Christ did not sin. Of course not, but he did endure discipline. Hebrews 5, 8 through 9. Although Christ, he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, so we know here, we're talking about death. He learned obedience through what he suffered, and then being made perfect, being raised to life, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Christ learned obedience through what he suffered. And God invites his sons and daughters, all of us, to do likewise through the death that we suffer. In fact, it's through our death that we are actually united with Christ. Romans 8, 16 through 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided what? We suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Our sanctification, which culminates in this glorification, we're going to talk about that in a, in a couple of weeks, is completed through by the death that we suffer. As we suffer the sting of death, we share with Christ in his sufferings, which gives us hope that we will also share in his resurrection. So if you remember nothing else, just remember this. Death is not a punishment for us. No, no, no. It's not a punishment for us. It's this evil reality of a fallen world which God uses to sanctify us, even to unite us with Christ. What death intends for evil, God works for our good. And so then, with that in mind, how should we think about our death? How should we think about our own death, the death of, of others? <clears throat> with this doctrinal form foundation in mind, how should we go about thinking of our own death? And I've got four things here, and then we'll be all done. First, we should recognize that death is not a good thing. Death is not a good thing. It is a bad thing. It is, in fact, an enemy of God, the last enemy that God will destroy, an enemy that Christ will destroy once and for all. Death is an enemy. It's not just a part of life. It is foreign to life. Death is hostile to life. It's an enemy of life, unnatural to life. And again, I've been to a few funerals, and, and I went to a funeral once where the pastor said in his prayer, thank you, God, for death, that you've given us death to free us from our pain." No, no, remember, death is a curse. Death is an enemy. Death is the giver of our pain. Death is the source of our pain. We don't hold death in high esteem. Death is not good. But we need not fear death. Number two, we should not fear our death, but rather rejoice at the fact that we will be with Christ in death. So listen to how Paul thinks about his death as it approaches in Philippians 1, 21 through 23. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. So Paul's in prison. He's thinking about how at some point all of these imprisonments, the, the hunger, the beatings are going to catch up with me and I'm going to die. And here he admits to live is, yes, fruitful labor for the kingdom. I continue to get to make disciples, but to depart and be with Christ, you know that that is far better. 
So we don't hold death in high esteem, and that's not what Paul's doing. Rather, he holds the relationship with Christ in the highest esteem. We don't rejoice of our, our death. We rejoice in our gaining of Christ. Immediately, again, I won't, Jeff's gonna talk about this next week. We get to rejoice in the thought of being with Christ in death. So we don't have to fear our enemy, but rather, Christ has already conquered our enemy. So death is our gain. Death is our gain. Those, though to those who do not know Christ, see death as a loss, see our death as you didn't get to complete or fulfill all of the things you wanted to do in life, we recognize the glory of Christ far surpasses this life. So we don't hold death in high esteem, but we're not afraid of it. We're not afraid of it because of the grace, the mercy of Christ. Number three, this one's really, really important. Death should regulate or correct your perspective on life. Your reputation, your wealth, your victory in a legal battle, your status among your peers, the amount of followers you have on Twitter, your success in business, all of this ends at death. It's brought to nothing at death. Death stops these pursuits in their tracks. And Jesus is he's constantly reminding us in the Gospels. Look at Luke 12, 16 through 21. And he, meaning Jesus, told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And then Matthew 6, 19, 19 through 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So here's what death is constantly doing for us promising to bring an end to our earthly pursuits, guaranteeing that those will come to an end. Therefore, set your mind on things everlasting. Set your, set your mind on a, a greater treasure than what is found on earth. Let your treasure be in heaven, not where moth and rust destroy, because, because these things, these greater things, are eternal. They're everlasting. They continue. So, for example, spend time knowing God. Spend time studying his word. There is no love of God apart from a love for his word. Spend time making disciples. Spend time with the people who will sharpen you and make you rich towards God and, and disciple people around you who are not rich towards God. They're only rich towards themselves. Spend time on things everlasting. Ask yourself, how much of what I've earned at work will amount to nothing at death? How would God's word instruct me to view my work? As you enjoy something, let enjoyment of, of things point you to the glory of the resurrection, point you to the glory of Christ. But don't let your enjoyment just terminate at death. 
how much of what you pour all of your energy into daily will just end at death. You see, death is like this splashing of cold water on your face, waking you up from the illusion that this life is the final word. Death it regulates, it, it corrects our view of this life. And finally, number four, we should view death through the lens of our union with Christ. As you feel the effects of death, you remember that you're sharing in Christ's holiness. You're being perfected. You're being sanctified. You're being united with Christ. Because in Acts 14, 22b, it says, Through many tribulations we must enter the King of God, kingdom of God. The road that leads to the kingdom of God is one full of suffering. So as you suffer, you say, I must be going in the right direction. As you feel the pains of death, you say, I'm following these tribulations. I'm going in the same way that Christ has gone before me. Each thorn in your flesh is a reminder that you're on the road to the kingdom. Every tribulation reminds us also that one day, in the same way that Jesus entered the kingdom through death, Jesus was resurrected. And so shall we. Every time I stick a needle in my arm because of diabetes, not like heroin or something, <laughs> because of diabetes, <clears throat> every time I stick a needle in my arm, it's this small reminder that God's working, even in this tiny little tribulation, working for my good. He's humbling me. He's disciplining me. and He's making me more and more like Christ. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 12a, the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with Christ, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. So I'm just going to say this as we close, and then somebody's going to come up and help me with Q&A. <clears throat> as we meditate on our death, we meditate on Christ's death. And as we meditate on Christ's death, we're reminded that he has already defeated the grave, that he sits on the throne, that he lives forevermore. And so, therefore, so shall we. We, we look through the lens of union with Christ in the resurrection. We do not have to fear death, this enemy, because one day death will be conquered. But we know at least that though we die, we shall surely live in and through Christ's grace to us. So to Christ in death be the glory forever and ever and ever. That's how we can worship God in our death, knowing that he is the final authority. He says the final word and one day will finally defeat death once and for all. To Christ be the glory. Amen? All right, Jeffrey, come on up here. Let's talk about death. Hopefully this thing's working. We'll see. It did. Oh, good. Am I on? Check. Check one, two. Okay. Uh, I'm not checking Twitter. He is. Uh, He's so, posting uh, Just now. so you know, so if you text questions <laughs> there during the, uh, the class, someone's back there uh, kind of writing all these down. And uh, so we got a, a number of questions. Some of them we won't get to just because of uh, the, uh, the amount of time we have. But feel free to uh, shoot us an email if we don't get to uh, your question. So first one. Tim, an elder asked how you can say that Chili's is cursed when their three-for-ten-dollar special is evidence of the inauguration of the kingdom. Oh, man. <laughs> you, don't have, you don't have to answer that. You don't have yeah, to answer that. I, uh, okay, fine. Okay. 
I was going to uh, apply our Christian ethics to that, great. that question. Utilitarian, you know, it's, oh, it's the money makes my values change. Anyways. <clears throat> okay. Uh, how do we respond to the death of unbelievers, especially when they are loved ones? It's a hard turn from the last question. I know. Very, very happy and fun. How do we respond to the death of unbelievers, especially when they are loved ones? You take a crack at it, and then I'll that. Yeah. So I mean, like you said, it's a hard turn because uh, is there... First off, we, God is the one who judges the heart, not us. And so, do we always know, guarantee, that a person is an unbeliever? Not always. And so God in his grace, I know of many stories where people have come to a knowing faith of God near their death. That even that process, remember I said death sanctifies us and disciplines us, that that process right there brings them to faith. And so praise God for that. But for, for those where that, that hasn't happened, uh, I mean, in short, and I'll let Jeff uh, say this uh, more pastorally, but we mourn, we weep, uh, we're devastated. Uh, we know that <clears throat> instantly at death, those people are, uh, their desire is that they would have trusted and had faith, that that's what welcomes them. The, the, there, is no, there is no hope, there is no uh, loving embrace of Christ awaiting them at their death. It's, it's rather hopeless. And so we mourn and, and we weep and we pray for uh, <clears throat> those that we know. We pray that God would show mercy. Ultimately, God is the one in charge of an individual's faith. God is the giver of faith. He's the giver of life. And even in spiritual life, God gives it. So the thing I don't want people to do is to hear, you know, I have, here's why this question is being asked, I would assume. People have like me, family members who are unbelievers. My, my immediate family members are, are not my wife and my in-laws, but people on my side, I don't have any believers in my family. And so I tend to think I have to be the catalyst of change in their life. I have to say the right words, have the right conversation to save them from this inevitable doom. And you don't have to put that pressure on yourself. That's not your burden to carry. Instead, you can, you can give that up to Christ, give that up to the one who is actually sovereign, can actually do something, and say, God, I pray that this conversation would be used, that as I, as I care for them, as I, as I love them, that they, they would see, but ultimately I know it's in your hands, not mine. So we don't have to live with this, this doom and gloom kind of pressure that, oh no, there's, this, there's no hope, and so I have, to, I have to, every time I see them, I have to correct them in their sin. No, 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 you can, you can pray for them, and you can ask and plead that, that God would save them. Jeffrey. Um, yeah, so I, I would, uh, I'd agree with that. I think, I think there's three things, at least, that you do. The first, uh, so the three words would be confess and grieve and worship. So what you confess, like Tim said, is at the end of the day, you don't know. You don't know who is and is not a believer. And, uh, and so if the thief on the cross can be converted on the cross, then your loved one can be converted on their deathbed. And, uh, and so uh, that's the first thing, that you don't really know. Uh, but even if not, even if they're not converted, I think that you do the other two, which are uh, to grieve and, uh, and to worship. So in terms of grieving, um, uh, that the Bible gives us permission to have emotions, uh, that we're not robots. Uh, and, uh, and so the Bible gives us permission to, uh, to cry and to feel sorrow and sadness and all those kind of things. Jesus, in his humanity, he experienced those things as well. The shortest uh, verse in all the Bible. Anyone know it? 
Jesus wept, John, uh, John 11. And so Jesus is familiar with, uh, with the sorrow of, uh, of death. And, uh, and so we have permission to enter into that human condition and to, uh, to cry out to God. But the other thing that, we, that, I, that I think we have to do is that we have to worship. That uh, like Job, whenever he loses everything, uh, not just possessions, uh, camels and donkeys and those kind of things, although he does lose all of those, but he loses his kids. And in the midst of that, he says, uh, blessed be the name of the Lord, that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And so uh, I think a combination of doing all of those things, confessing our inadequacy, our limitations, our restrictions, we're not omniscient, we don't know who is and is not saved, we don't know who God has and has not elected, uh, and then we grieve and then, uh, and then we worship. So that would be how I would respond to that. Uh, next question, this is a good question. Is it okay to get cremated, is it better to be buried? Tim. I, I, I'll, get, I'll give that one to you. Great. <laughs> I, have, yeah, I have an answer. I'll just let you uh, take care of it. He'll be like, there's three things. It'll be very Great. Uh, okay. So the big thing that I want you to hear, there's no explicit <laughs> command from the Lord. All right. And so one of the things that we uh, want to stress here at, uh, at Parkway is the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. And, uh, and so some churches are going to try to remove stuff from Scripture. Some churches are going to try to add stuff to Scripture. We don't want to do either. And, uh, and so this is an area where the Bible is not explicit, and so we don't want to uh, take a hard stance uh, where the Bible hasn't. And, uh, and so I don't think that you're sinning if you, uh, if you do one or the other. I think, though, historically, traditionally, there is a preference for burial, over cremation. So let me make the, the case for that, again, with the caveat that if you choose to disregard this, I don't think it's an issue of sin. I think it's more an issue of, uh, of, uh, of wisdom and, uh, and the heart and that kind of stuff. So uh, obviously, it doesn't matter in terms of the eventual resurrection, that God can raise, whether your body is decomposed or burned or whatever it might be, God can uh, raise them all alike. After all, there are people who are martyred by being burned to death. And so that certainly is uh, it's not like if you're cremated, God is somehow thwarted, uh, or you're going to, you know, your, your ashes are going to mix with someone else's ashes, and you end up with Tim's nose or something like that. And, uh, and so that's not, that's not the issue. The issue is more uh, the, the matter of what best symbolizes the Christian hope. And, uh, and so one of the reasons that uh, both Jews and uh, early Christians would avoid cremation is because it was always birthed out of this uh, platonic thought. Uh, if you think of the philosopher Plato and, uh, and his uh, sort of idea was that the, uh, the body is a prison for the soul and your goal is to escape from the body where you can really be free. And we see that's not the Christian hope. That uh, creation, God created the body and it's good, he called it good, that Jesus incarnates into a body. So there's not this division between body and soul. In fact, that is uh, the horror of death, as Tim was talking about, is that separation. That's not intended uh, to be the case. And, uh, and so one of the reasons that early uh, Christians and, and Jews had uh, avoided cremation is because it doesn't best symbolize our hope, which is that we go to sleep. And then one day we are raised up again. And so that's the, the reason that Christians have historically preferred burial, uh, because there is this idea of wanting to teach through liturgy, kind of teach through your traditions. And the tradition of bur burial best expresses the picture of our hope of resurrection. And, uh, and so again, that's not a command. 
Uh, I'm not saying that you're sinning if you do it otherwise, but that is the way that, that is the reason that uh, throughout history, Christians have always, when it comes to Christian philosophers and theologians and that kind of stuff, have always preferred uh, burial over cremation. So, and that alarm is a good reminder that uh, we are out of time. I'll pray for us. Lord, we thank you uh, for the grace of Christ. We thank you uh, that you, through Christ, have given us life. Lord, that we don't have to fear death. And I pray, Lord, that uh, we would continue to, to meditate on Christ's death and that we would continue to meditate on your word and that would uh, lead to worship. I pray that your spirit would empower us to worship you in suffering in the midst of tribulation and that we would ultimately be encouraged that your, your word would be uh, refreshing waters to us in the midst of our pain, of our sadness, our brokenness, and this darkness, that we would love the light of Christ and that we would be encouraged and nourished by it. Uh, we thank you just for a time to gather and, and study uh, your word. I pray now as we hear your word proclaimed, and we sing songs, I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged, we would be conformed to the image of uh, the Son. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.